My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Natalie Ophir Flint. This was a really fun one for me because Natalie and I actually work together in addition to this podcast and also my private coaching practice. I'm part of a leadership development organization called Konu. And Natalie is one of the partners at Konu. So she's a really amazing consultant, coach, teacher, entrepreneur who's helping grow this business that I'm, that I'm a part of. And it's really exciting to bring her on the show today because she recently, during the, in the midst of this incredibly complex year, moved herself and her family back to Tel Aviv and, and has been working on opening the Tel Aviv, the Israel office of Konu. Um, so this was really nice timing and excuse for us to kind of just dig in with each other around our shared passion for adaptive leadership. And as you'll learn a bit more about what adaptive leadership is, at least as Natalie understands it, and to a certain extent as I understand it, but I'll say another word or two here, which is it's this amazing uh, uh, approach to leadership. Uh, I would argue a really revolutionary approach to leadership that's rooted in a deeper understanding of how change actually happens. It was pioneered by Ron Heifetz at the Harvard Kennedy School uh, has been taken up by n- uh, an incredible number of amazing practitioners around the world. There's a global network of practitioners committed to adaptive leadership. And it's a core piece of the work that we do at Konu with organizations. So in this conversation with Natalie, we explore her personal journey, her purposeful personal journey into her identity as a leader and what what has come along the way, her identity as a Jewish person, as an Israeli Jew, as an American Jew, her unique ability to talk across those two worlds and to build a vibrant global network. Um, it's just, just really, it was really fun for me personally to connect into that because of uh, the deepening relationship I have with her. But I also left the conversation really feeling like if you've been sitting with the changes that this year has forced or asked, and you've been wondering where and how to go next, this conversation has something for you. And if you care at all about leadership and what leadership is, this conversation definitely has something for you. So I'm excited to uh, bring for this meeting of worlds, and I'd love for us to get settled in. (sighs) And hear what Natalie has for us. Natalie. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. Hi, Andy. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's so good. This is so fun. Um, folks listening in will have already heard my intro, but it's just so cool that that uh, we get to work together and we work together a lot. 
Uh, maybe we could, maybe we could even work together more. You know, there's times when I wish we could work together more, but I really appreciate what you bring to our work. And I'm excited to have this conversation just personally for you and I, because I'm realizing there's lots of, lots of things I don't know a lot about you. And I, and I bet a lot of people who have work colleagues who they resonate with can still relate to that. It's like we we align around the work, but there's all of these, these stories and identities and stuff that are we're carrying with us that we may not ever get a chance to surface. So I'm really excited to just bring that into the space a bit more today. Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. One thing we were talking about before we started recording this is uh, <laughs> I was sort of having a moment. Uh, we were in a team meeting and the, we were doing some reflection. And the question was, you know, what's one thing you've learned in the past six months? And for me, my learning was like, I've learned it's really hard to have two kids instead of one. <laughs> and then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Natalie has three children, like how in the world does she do it? And I know, you know, I'm sure your partner is amazing and and you give credit where credit is due, but also like, I just, from where I sit, I encounter you as really, really gracefully and skillfully inhabiting a lot of different roles. Uh, You know, you're a consultant, you're a coach, you're a partner leader of a consulting company, and you're also a parent of three uh, amazing kids and you travel around the world with them. <laughs> just like totally in awe actually of that. And I wonder if, you know, if you could just, maybe we can start there. Like, what's it like for you to inhabit these many roles and how, how do you navigate that? Yeah. You know, that's, that's been a big theme this year. Um, a really big theme. Um, and you know, if you would have asked me this question um, a year, a year and a half ago, I think maybe I would have had a more eloquent answer in the sense <laughs> of, you know, pre, pre-pandemic and pre-lockdowns. Um, yeah. uh, I think it was a lot easier to compartmentalize. You mm. know, I had mm. I had my professional roles during the day and then um, in the evening I would I would have a family role and I was always really good at you know, trying to put a boundary there and to be really present when I was at home with the kids mm-hmm. um, and, and to take time off for that. And basically what happened in the last year is that it all got blended together, mm-hmm. for better or for worse, mm-hmm. really blended together. And, you know, I found myself in the middle of these lockdowns where I had three kids at home and had to care for them and homeschool them mm-hmm. and... Um, and do this while, while um, you know, facilitating workshops and coaching clients. And, um, and, and what we'll probably talk about is that this past year, I've also transitioned from uh, living in Los Angeles to moving back to Tel Aviv. So kind of holding that transition um, through the pandemic. Um, so, so it's been a lot. It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's really been a lot. Um, wow. And, you know what I find what I find useful. Um, you know, I the adaptive leadership framework talks a lot about roles and about role transitions, mm-hmm. and the importance of kind of recognizing the different roles and the different hats that we have, and being able to transition between those roles. Mm-hmm. And in some professions, that's that's a lot easier, right? So my my partner, my husband, he's a physician. And he's also carrying lots of roles, but the transition rituals are kind of easier for him. You know, he goes to work, he puts on a white coat or scrubs, and then he comes <laughs> home, he takes them off, and he's dad again. Yeah. 
For me, that doesn't exist so much. So part of what mm. I've what I've learned to do is to find little transition rituals um, between my my different roles, the different hats, mm. Um, mm. while while being in the same space. Um, and sometimes that's been easier, and sometimes it's been harder. Um, I found lots of joy this past year in really being present with the family. Mm. Um, I've mm. I've seen sides of my children that I didn't even know existed because we're just together so much. Oh, I love uh, that. And connections between between the three of them. Um, and and also it's brought us to the edge, you know, yeah. where, where there were times where I just needed to leave the house and go for a run or take a deep breath. Um, <laughs> it's all been there this year. Mm. All mm. Mm. Thank you for sharing all of that. I really appreciate uh, the both and it's both been beautiful and it's brought us to the edge. And I suspect that, uh, that there are, I can, I personally, as another parent, I really relate to that. I really relate to that. Um, But there's something that's so meaningful about, for me, I'm speaking for myself. There's something that's so meaningful to me about recognizing the sort of connection to lineage that we're a part of. And, uh, and that part of what I'm doing is not only parenting and keeping my, you know, taking care of my kids and keeping them alive, but to the extent that I'm able helping them connect to the bigger family histories that they've been a part of. And, and I'm aware without knowing a lot of the details that you sort of identify, you have at least this sort of dual identity. Maybe there are many identities, but you have sort of your American identity and your Israeli identity. And you've actually navigated back and forth physically this year. You moved, as you mentioned, you moved back to Tel Aviv. And I just wonder, like, how does that, in addition to the role transitions, which you spoke about so beautifully, which easier said than done when everything's all in the same space (laughs) and you don't just leave the hospital and come home. It's like, I'm like, all right, I'm turning from my computer over to you in (laughs) in the same room or something. Right. But like, there's also this identity piece. And I I imagine that you're, you're really, really conscious and aware that your children are, are going to grow up with some sense of mixed nationality identity with some like, so I'm just curious how you you've been thinking about that and holding that that uh, complexity. Yeah, you know when when I reflect on my kind of on my own personal journey, um, in in hindsight, my personal journey is is all about, I'd say, a search um, um, and a grounding in identity and purpose. Mm. Um, mm. You know, my background is I, I was born in Israel to Israeli parents um, who decided to move to a small town in New Jersey when I was only two years old. So I essentially, I grew up in New Jersey from age two to age 18. Um, and I grew up in, you know, in the United States, but in a very Israeli household. Mm. Um, my parents spoke Hebrew to me. We would We would go back to Israel in the summers to visit grandparents and extended family. And as as an adolescent, especially like like that um, that tension, that even a little bit of conflict uh, of identity was very very present. It was it was a struggle. So wait, so so what am I? Where do I belong? Am am I Israeli? Am I American? Um, um, you know what 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 pieces do I connect to? 
Um, and when I was 18, I decided that I would move back to Israel on my own. So wow. my parents, uh, my brothers, I have two younger brothers, they all stayed in the States and I packed a couple of bags and um, moved. It was like with a group of people um, with the Israeli scouts, it was like, um, uh, you know, like a framework. Um, and we moved back to Israel when I was 18 and I lived on a kibbutz. Um, and um, I think that was the first real inflection point um, in, in, my, in my journey of figuring out my identity. Mm. Because mm. when I moved to Israel, it was the first time in my life where I felt like I could really breathe in a different way. I really felt mm. a sense of connection mm. and of, of feeling at home like I had mm. never felt before. Mm. And at the same time, it was also very clear to me that there was a strong pull to, to the U.S. and to, you know, the Jewish community in the U.S. and to many of the, the things that I was exposed to as, as a child. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's when I began this journey around really deeply understanding my hybrid identity and also connecting that to, to purpose and understanding that I have a role to play here, perhaps a leadership role to play in terms of, you know, being, being this hybrid, of, mm. uh, you know, of both an Israeli Jew and an American Jew, mm. uh, connecting mm. those two worlds. And to your point around children, you know, I, I, I believe that my children um, are, are the offsprings of that. Mm. Um, and, Near my husband is an is an Israeli. He was born and raised in Israel, but we share a common love for travel and for adventures. So over the course of uh, of our time together, we've relocated um, to the U.S. twice, uh, <laughs> once once to Boston and then for a few years to Los Angeles. So we've been, you know, and our children as well have been back and forth a couple of times. Mm. Um, and even with all those complexities, I actually believe that it gives a really strong, um, you know, a, a really strong sense of, of identity to be able to be connected to your roots, to understand where you come from. Um, mm. And mm. It's very present in, in my life, my identity, and also my children's. Mm. Mm. Wow. That, that brings up a lot for me. One thing I've been personally, in some ways, I feel like I'm just really, truly on the beginning of this, although it's, it's, it's been sort of germinating and evolving in the past few years is to, to reconnect to roots. There's a way in which um, I experience more and more my American identity as kind of a rootless identity. And, and, and what I mean by that is a recognition that, that at some point, someone in my past said, I need to leave the place I was born to go somewhere else. Right. And that somewhere else was America. So I sense there is something, you know, you spoke to this moment of like, oh, I'm home here. I, oh, I can breathe. And now there's also home back there. Like, like there is a sort of like a widening of your sense of home by being able to actually put feet on the ground in the part of your past that you hadn't yet been able to because you had grown up in the States. And that it was not an either or, but a both end. Is that right? It is. And, you know, for me, um, 
feeling connected and and those roots is something that's really integral to to who I am and it, and and it really kind of sits on on this idea also of like my Jewish identity mm. um, and 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 the sense of Jewish peoplehood and being and being part of the Jewish people mm. um, and there's um, there's there's a lot of tradition behind that you know I'm not I'm not a very religious person but from from a traditional communal standpoint mm. um, I feel very connected to my to my Jewish roots to my Jewish history um, my ancestral history and I think that that's also not only allowed me to feel you know comfortable you know both with my Israeli identity and with my American Jewish identity but but also to feel grounded in something that is bigger than than me mm. Mm. yeah and you've used the word purpose as well here and I, when I hear something bigger than me I, that that evokes purpose could you talk more about about that like what is it what's important about being grounded in something that's bigger than you yeah, you know, so so like many young people, I, I I ask myself, you know, what's you know what what's my purpose in life, you know, um, um, you know, beyond beyond a strong sense of purpose in terms of family and children, you know, what's what's my professional purpose? Mm. Um, and and over the years, I realized that I could actually use myself as data. And the journey, the personal journey, and this hybrid identity that mm-hmm. that I hold mm-hmm. to also helping make progress on some deep challenges, deep adaptive challenges that that my community is facing as well. Mm-hmm. And one of those challenges is really the relationship between Israel and Jewish communities around the world. Mm-hmm. And at one point in my professional journey, I realized that I actually had a value added here. I, I could actually speak both languages in a way um, that really resonated with both communities. Um, and, and I developed that. I developed that a lot. Um, years, um, you know, years after I, I moved back to Israel, I joined a nonprofit think tank, which I eventually became the CEO of, which deals with, um, you know, some of the most difficult adaptive challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people. And, one of the the projects or the issue areas that I'm most proud of is that um, I established a task force that really dealt with this with this issue of how mm. to connect Israel to to Jewish communities around the world and vice mm. versa and what does that mean and how to strengthen this 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 idea this identity of Jewish peoplehood. So so it was really kind of the coming together mm. of my personal exploration, my personal journey with my professional calling and purpose um, and and lives inside of me to this day and, and also a big part of my work up to this moment. I love that. So it's in a way, it sounds like you looked at your own journey and realized that your journey might be emblematic of a, a, a deep and wide shared journey for the Jewish people around the world, that, that, that there are this, in one sense, there is a collective 
Jewish people. And in another sense, there were American Jews and Israeli Jews and all the other places where there are large, large Jewish populations or even small Jewish populations that you saw this opportunity in you, your ability to walk across those boundaries and and unite people became, became a gift that you could see in yourself. Is that right? Exactly. And also this deep desire for, for, for people to kind of enjoy the fruits of all the benefits that you get from those deep connections. Mm. So for me, community is so important and it's so filling and fulfilling that, um, you know, you could live full lives as, you know, American Jews or as, you know, uh, um, German Jews or, or Jews in, in, in Russia, right? You could, but there is so much, um, um, so much to gain and so much um, connection and so much shared history and tradition and learning to be had when you can actually see the community um, and the connection between those, those different parts. Mm. Um, and and I, I feel a really strong calling um, to, to help serve as, as a bridge or to help people walk through that personal journey themselves if they're so inclined to do so. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. I'm really, I'm feeling really touched by that right now. You named it though, as an adaptive challenge. And uh, we're going to, at some point, I know we're going to talk about adaptive leadership more explicitly, and maybe this will be our bridge into it. But, but the way you're describing it for me makes me makes I'm like, you know, I'm like feeling like, ah, like I, I wish I had the same connection to sort of, you know, like my Irish ancestor ancestors who are alive and, you know, like who are my relatives in Ireland? Who are my relatives in Germany? Who are my relatives in, in Norway? You know, I've, I've done a little bit of like the 23 and me DNA testing and have found these roots, but I don't, I just feel the absence now it like even more as you, as you paint this beautiful picture of like Russian and German and American and Israeli Jews somehow united or connected. And so I'm like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> but, but but that but you named it as an adaptive challenge, which means that not everyone is saying, yeah, sign me up. That there's that there are challenges to helping people connect to that sort of more global, interconnected, diverse Jewish identity that you're that you're standing for. And I wonder if you could maybe talk about that. Yeah, you know. Um, so first of all, see. There, there's something so um, visceral or organic in, in, in our need for that connection, right? Like, why did you go and do 23 and Me? Yeah. Right? There's, there, there's something that draws us to, yeah. to wanting to find out more about that. Yeah. Um, and, and if we go back, you know, um, far enough, there was a strong sense of, of Jewish peoplehood and Jewish connection, but there, there, there have been strong, so, sociological um, trends that have have dispersed us in many different directions, including the establishment of the state of Israel, which also brought into the Jewish people a nationalistic identity. Mm. Right. So 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 suddenly your Judaism was defined um, in terms of nationality. Um, um, and in the U.S., um, the Jewish identity is oftentimes for many individuals defined from a religious standpoint. Mm. Right, so you are Jewish as opposed to Christian or Muslim or Buddhist, um, and and what that what that has led to is that different communities kind of self-identify very differently, um, and 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 gaps have emerged, um, um, and and disconnected us 
mm-hmm. um, in many mm-hmm. ways from like that 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 global sense of connection of family of of community um and um and I feel that's a shame I mm. feel that there's mm. that that there is something very strong um about coming together again yeah yeah I love that you're pointing out like you're noticing I'm even as you talk about it, there's just the part of me that's feeling it and and there's a reason why so many of us around the world and certainly in the states I think I talk I've talked to a lot of Americans who more generally are interested in and wrestling with where where they came from and what I hear in you what you're standing for is like actually there's a, a really clear opportunity uh, for Jewish peoples around the world to engage in that reconnection in a pretty beautiful and conscious and available way that might not always be as available for some other identity populations around the world and that you're your skills and around that have really lit you up in that journey. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and have mm. really fulfilled me, have, have given me a, a deep sense of purpose in that yeah. sense. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that purpose. I, I, I sense that every time we work together, moving forward, I'm, I'm going to be holding that awareness a lot more present and I, and it, it just mm. makes me feel connected to you a lot more. So thanks for sharing that. There's another connection we share, which is we both took this class in graduate school. Uh, and I actually can't remember, right? Like, so the, 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 na- the name of the methodology is adaptive leadership, but the class might've been called leadership on the line or, or, you know, what I can't remember actually what it was in the catalog taught by yeah. Professor Ron Heifetz. Yeah. And uh, I'll speak for myself, but I really want to hear from you like that class totally shifted my perspective on uh, what happens inside of groups of people, like what's actually going on in groups of people that are navigating challenges or change or resisting change or, you know, just sort of, it was really a transformative learning experience for me and a humbling one. Um, You know, I remember sort of like, I was like a, like at the, I was a little nonprofit leader from Boston sitting in a room with people who are like, you know, heads of state and running in international organizations and, you know, leading militaries. And I was like, what is going on in this space? You know, it was just really on so many levels. It was an incredible experience. And, uh, and you've alluded to it too now a couple of times. You've talked about role transitions and the adaptive challenge of, of connecting stuff, but like, you didn't have that language until you took this class. There was something about this class that really impacted you. And I wonder if you could just speak to maybe in the process of speaking to your experience of the class, we could also kind of unpack a bit for listeners, what, what adaptive leadership is about. Yeah, definitely. You know, that course at Harvard um, turned my life upside down, like, <laughs> like literally. <laughs> um, I I was familiar with the adaptive leadership framework beforehand. Um, you know, theoretically, uh, we we used a lot of um, kind of the the theory in in our work at the Reut Institute, the nonprofit think tank that I was a part of. Um, but just sitting um, sitting in that course. Uh, where there are 120 people from all around the world um, in a space. Uh, and I'll say just a word about kind of the, the methodology of the course is really to use um, the group as data. So there's a lot of what we call here and now work. 
which is that um, by understanding the group dynamics, you can actually learn the framework and maybe, um, you know, some things about yourself and about group dynamics and about change that would be a lot more difficult to learn if you were just kind of, you know, listening to a lecture or reading a book. But the reason that this course really turned my life upside down is because I encountered a framework which just became so useful for me in in making sense of the world and and the processes that I had been involved in up until that moment. Um, And, you know, there, there are two things, I think, that strike me the most from the adaptive leadership framework. Or maybe three, if we have time. Yeah, Uh, I think we have time. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see. We'll find out. We'll see. We'll see. Um, The first thing that I love about this framework is that that it makes a a distinction between authority as a role and leadership as an activity. Mm. Mm. Right? And and that um, is such a simple concept that is so profound. So, so for me, you know, most of us have been conditioned to think of, of leadership as the person at the head of the pyramid, mm-hmm. right? And, and what I learned through this course is that the person at the head of a pyramid is the authority. Yeah. And that's great that they are the authority, but the adaptive leadership framework defines leadership not as a role, but rather as an activity, and specifically the activity of helping groups make progress on their challenges, on their mm. tough, tough challenges. Mm. Mm. And that was it was mind blowing for me because um, it's so empowering because suddenly you can do these activities of leadership from wherever you are in the system. Mm. Um, and and there were times in my life where I was the authority figure and. I could do these activities of leadership, but there were also a ton of times where I didn't have any authority, but I could still do all these activities of leadership. Um, and, and that was so powerful for me. Um, Can I underline one thing too, that also that really, that was also a powerful distinction for me. And, and I, I think the most surprising part of that distinction for me, which is implicit in what you're saying is not only could anyone in theory practice leadership from any vantage point, um, but that also people who were understood as, uh, as leaders because of their authority actually had a number of constraints about how they could practice leadership. That actually being in that position of power and influence, which, which I sense many people have thought that had thought their whole lives that if I just get to the top of this pyramid, then everything's, you know, then I'll be able to get everything done that I want to get done. Right. To to only to discover that there are all of these visible and invisible pressures to meet specific, very important needs around order and direction and protection and, and resource that actually made it hard if like there was a change that needed to happen. People were looking at the authority going like, why are things uncomfortable? Why are, why are you asking us to let go of this? What, you know, and that could actually be really hard for someone at the top of the pyramid to actually lead because everyone was expecting them to just keep things together. Exactly. That's spot on. And, you know, I felt that 
I, I physically felt that when I when I got back from um, from studying at the Kennedy School, um, I, I started my role as the executive director, the CEO of the Raoud Institute. And I thought, OK, here here I am. I'm finally kind of at the head of the pyramid and I can I can get whatever I wanted to get done. Now I could get it done. And it was it was exactly the opposite. I, I, that was the role where I actually felt the most constrained that I had ever felt mm. because a lot of times in order to kind of facilitate deep change, right? Like that, that transformative change that is required in order to change, for example, mindsets around identity and behavior and culture and all these things that we've been talking about, you actually have to challenge the status quo, yeah. right? You have to put a question mark on the way people have been doing things. And, and as the authority figure, the expectations that people had for me was actually mm. to, to, to steady the ship, not mm-hmm. to make waves, mm-hmm. right? Not to, not to, not to question the status quo, but rather to, to help strengthen the status quo mm. and, and to make things, um, easy and comfortable for my employees and to give my board clarity around the direction where we're going and, mm. um, and so, and so, to actually move move the needle, um, and and challenge many of the assumptions that existed within the organization, and also on some of the issues that we were working on as as an organization, um, it was it was really hard to do that. Yeah, um, yeah. Amazing that you like right after this class, you stepped immediately into a role that could give you that firsthand experience of the constraints of authority. And I think maybe I'll even add one more layer there, which is, and this might not have been true in your context, although perhaps if it is, I welcome you to share, but I'm aware that, that like, let's, let's, let's see if I can think of a concrete example, but the idea is basically like that as an authority, People, many people look for you to maintain and strengthen the status quo, except for the people who are, are actually questioning the status quo. And, uh, and, and in that case, then as the authority, you become like you're either the, the ultimate arbiter of the status quo in the best sense of the word, or you're the arbiter of the status quo in the worst sense. You become the, the person who's the problem, right? Like you're the one, oh, well, you know, they're, in, they're the authority, and this this thing keeps happening that's injuring me or my people or this in this context or the environment. So so authority figures now the, the villain, right? And so it's like you're you're trapped in this kind of like hero villain story that can be really, really challenging. Yeah. And you know that actually that brings me exactly to the second thing that I love so much about this framework, which is that. It is problem centered. Uh. So, 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 you know, what, what, what the framework talks about is how you have to start with first understanding what is the challenge at hand around which you want to help make progress or around which you want to practice leadership. Mm. And, and as opposed to putting the individual or, in the, or individuals in the center, right? We're, we're, we're so tempted to make it about the person. Mm. They did this right, or they did this wrong, or 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 they have followers, or they don't have followers, or they're persuasive or not persuasive. But the adaptive leadership framework does exactly the opposite. It says, start with the challenge. What is the challenge that this group or this organization or this community is currently facing? 
And then think about what does progress look like? What, 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 would, what would it look like for, for this group to make progress on this issue? And only then do you ask yourself, what can I, from whatever role I am playing in the system, mm. what can I do to exercise leadership and to help make progress on this challenge? Mm. What that did for me is that it really helped ground me as I was this authority figure, mm. right? Because otherwise, it's kind of like I'm a marionette like somebody's like playing with my strings, as you said, like some people think I'm a hero. And so like they put me up on a pedestal and that's, there, there's something really seductive about that, right? Yeah. Like you want, you want people to say to you, yeah, good job. Keep doing that. Or, or, or the opposite, right? Or some people will say, no, you're the villain. Why are you doing this? It's horrible. Yeah. And it's, it's really easy to get, um, you know, to, 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 to get thrown from side to side. Mm. Mm. Helps ground me is, is a deep sense of understanding what the challenge is that I want to make progress on and, and, and what is my purpose mm. Uh, mm. so that, so that mm. I can continue to practice leadership regardless of, you know, the strings that are being pulled um, and that are the things that are being thrown at me from different directions. Yeah. That was a I'm, huge, huge learning. Yeah. And there's this sense of like, what I'm hearing as you describe that is a, a perspective taking that enables you not only to reorient on the problem, but in the process to be aware that the role is not you. And that even if in the role you're getting up on the pedestal or getting villainized or lion, like whether you're villainized or lionized, you can go like, Oh, that actually has nothing to do with me <laughs> or does it, or, or it, it's actually not a commentary on whether or not I'm leading. Yes. The whether or not I'm leading can be anchored in whether or not we're making progress on the challenge that is clearly the collective challenge. Whether or not I'm, I'm being lionized or villainized is maybe at most a commentary on whether or not I'm fulfilling the authority role effectively. Exactly. Yeah. And then a big piece of that, you know, apropos the beginning of our conversation about roles and role transitions, yeah. It yeah. is building that muscle of being able to depersonalize. Right. Because at the end of the day, we're people. And if and and it's very easy to take things personally and to be affected by, you know, the commentary that's being made at you, Um, even to the degree that, you know, that that you take it home with you and um, and and it affects your well-being. So Mm -hmm. part of, you know, part of the skill or the muscle that I needed to build was this muscle of being able to create a little bit of space between kind of my professional role and, and, and who I am and the activities that I'm doing. Mm. To, to like, how, how did you practice that then? Or how at this moment, as you've evolved over the years, how are you thinking about that? Like what, what advice or insight do you have about that? easier said than done insight like oh yeah just don't say don't take it personally that's about the authority role that's not about you and it's like but they just said i'm a um you know they just said i'm a villain like how can i not take that personally how do you yeah how do you engage with that yeah you know it's a huge question and it's so it's so hard actually our colleague uh, tim o'brien writes a lot about that um, yeah yeah i really for those interested i really recommend you know reading some some of his stuff on this um, for me, um, the, the, um, 
the most powerful and effective tool was actually building out my support system. And, mm. and I'm really lucky. Um, you know, for, for me, my number one, my, my number one person in my support system is near my, my partner, my husband. Um, and he is just so good at just, he's just, he's just there. And, and, um, and just by being there, he allows me to reflect and, and to create that space and, um, you know, re- really to, to helps me depersonalize when, when necessary. Um, for others, it could be, you know, a good friend, um, or a place that they go. Um, but, but just having the support system, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. is so critical mm-hmm. to being able to, you know, to, to, to practice leadership. Yeah. Um, it's like someone who just loves you or cares about you or sees you and welcomes you regardless of how good quote unquote or bad things are going in the work, but rather to just be like, you're you and I see you and I've got your back. It sounds like that's a big, big yeah, piece and, of work. And pulls and pulls you to, to, to having perspective. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, to, to getting we're we're so we're so engulfed in the day to day that um, having a space to you know to really zoom out and get perspective um, around the work that we're doing is so critical. So mm. Mm. yeah, beautiful. Okay, so what's the third distinction? You said there's there's three. We've got we've got authority versus leadership. We've got kind of person versus problem. Right. And so we want to understand leadership, what leadership actually is. We want to understand what the problem or challenge actually is. What's what's the third distinction? The third distinction that for me was um, was so eye opening was this idea that people don't resist change Mm. just just because of the change. But rather what they are resisting are the are the real and perceived losses that they think they will incur as a result of the change. Right. So, so a lot of times, you know, we talked about, about how making progress and some of these deep transformative challenges requires putting a question mark on the status quo, right? It, it requires changing sometimes really deep beliefs, behaviors, um, ways of doing things that have been present for us for, for, for years. Um, and, and where the resistance usually comes from, it, um, is from the losses that people feel that they will have to incur mm. as they make mm. those shifts. Mm. And, and that was, that was really eye-opening for me. Mm. Because what it caused me to do is first to appreciate, right. Just, just to sit with and appreciate how difficult moving that ship is. Mm. Um, mm. And then to really, to really diagnose What's going on for folks? What's at stake for them? What are they holding on to and they're fearing um, letting go of? Because once you diagnose that, then at least you can you can help manage um, manage that change and hold mm. hold them through that change. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So like people don't resist change; they resist loss. That yeah. there's actually something. Whether that loss is real is uh, is a question worth exploring but from where they sit if that they see that change coming there's there's a conscious or unconscious sense that they're they're going to lose something when that change comes and that's where the resistance comes from is that what you're saying it's exactly what i'm saying yeah 
Mm. Like what are some of the things that, uh, how can we put, how can we kind of put a clearer point on this? Where, what are some examples for you of, of either in your own experience of resisting change or in the work that you do or in, in the, on the, in the global context right now, like where, where does that, that fear of loss emerge? And, and then maybe we could even go step one, one step further. And how do you then engage with people around that loss, particularly if it's a real loss? Like I actually will lose X, Y, and Z if this change happens. Yeah, you know, so so the example um, that, that comes to mind is really around the adaptations that have been going on around the pandemic. Mm. Um, mm. And, 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 and COVID was so unexpected. And what it did was that it, it forced entire, you know, entire systems to adapt almost overnight. Mm. Um, and, and that's true on the level of family, right? We talked about this at the beginning, right? There's so many things that we as a family needed to, needed to adapt to, um, everything from, you know, little things like not having time for yourself or being in a very small confined space as, um, as things were going on to, um, um, to bigger things, Mm. you know, like on the societal level to, to lockdowns and to changing, changing behavior and not leaving the house or leaving the house with masks or so many, so many different changes. Um, I felt it very strongly also around school systems Mm -hmm. uh, and, and how, you know, my kids teachers had to pivot literally overnight um, and, um, and, and adapt to virtual learning and, and everything that, everything that that brings with it. Mm. Um, and, and at first you could see there was, there was a lot of resistance. It's mm-hmm. really hard. Um, mm. and, and, and people didn't want to change and it was very difficult and there were real losses there. Mm. Uh, you know, not just losses. There were, there were extreme losses, you know, of health and life and, and job security. Um, but, but even for people who didn't necessarily feel those really big losses, there were tons of little losses, um, like like life cycle events that that couldn't happen as a result to to the shifts that were happening. You know, my my daughter celebrated um, celebrated a birthday and she couldn't invite her friends, and having to do a Zoom birthday party on the year when we were leaving Los Angeles after having been there for three years. Um, saying goodbye to her friends over a computer screen and she moved to a different country. That's, that's really hard. That's adaptation. Um, really dealing with, with a lot of losses there. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I think I'm tuning into, that's a really powerful felt example that I'm sure many, almost everyone in some way, shape or form can relate to that as they hear it. And I'm tuning into though, also, although none of us would have asked for it, there are, are, have been some surprising opportunities and upsides that have emerged from these adaptations, right? Like, and we don't have a ton of time to unpack them, but just to sort of explore like people who, who were able to, to keep their jobs were suddenly able to keep their jobs from anywhere, right? Like for folks who could work virtually, 
they realized that they didn't necessarily have to to do the hard scrabble, high cost, low quality life that that maybe would be required to live in a large urban center. They could they could move, they could relocate, and that relocation wouldn't have even seemed possible six months earlier. And suddenly it was available, right? So that's maybe one. Another example is 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 perhaps the upsides of schooling around what becomes possible when you have access to to all sorts of resources in the virtual world that you don't necessarily have access to in an in-person classroom, right? Like, so just to kind of name that the losses are, are real and potentially the upsides are real of the change. And, and that's that, exactly the example I wanted to give around the school system, which okay, is that, yeah. that, that the schools, you know, most schools haven't changed, even though the world has changed dramatically the last, you know, 20 years. You know, most of our school systems have not changed for the past hundred years, right? Yeah. You know, um, the way our parents went to school is very similar to the way that we went to school, mm. which is which is actually very similar to the way that our children went to school. Mm. And that system has been very resistant to change. Mm. But what happened now is almost by force. You know, my 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 daughter's sixty five year old English teacher had to figure out Zoom and new modalities and methodologies that actually created a shift in the school system that, that, you know, that for decades hadn't happened until that point. Mm. I think the big question for us now is going to be whether the the system will be able to continue that momentum of change Mm. as opposed to being like an elastic rubber band where they shoot back to, um, to the way that they were used to doing things beforehand, because that's the big opportunity for this adaptation, right? If, if we're already incurring those losses and the, and the change is already happening and we're giving up some of the ways that we were used to doing business, are we able to sustain that into the future? Mm. And, and I think that we have mm. a big role to play in actually helping that happen. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I suspect we'll probably see examples of both play out to varying degrees in, in the months and years ahead that some some will embrace they will have felt the upsides enough that they can cross that adaptive gap and others will sort of let the let the elasticity pull them back to what was before so yeah so so the like takeaway that i'm getting here is that this is really really complicated deeply human deeply challenging work to actually enable people to change in ways that are meaningful and impactful for, for collective, for communities, for organizations, for societies. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm aware we've, we've only got a few minutes left, unfortunately. Um, and we haven't really talked at all about kind of, you know, you, you have physically having moved back to Tel Aviv, you move back and shortly, shortly thereafter, the, the bombings happened. And there's this whole, there's this whole conflict, this centuries old conflict playing itself out in, in, in Israel and Palestine. And, and we haven't talked at all about that. And I'm sensing part of me kind of like, didn't even want to bring it up now because we can't really talk meaningfully about it in three minutes. And I also don't want to put you on the spot. And it just strikes me that that is, if, if to the extent that I, I want to, I'll invite you to depersonalize from that and not like say like, well, here's my opinion as, as a representative of the Jewish people or of Israel, but rather as just a human being who cares about adaptation and change and adaptive leadership. It just strikes me that you're kind of living in and through 
one of the the biggest kind of global examples. And I, and it's sort of one of these things that like everyone knows about, but not a, most of us don't really actually know anything about, right? Like everyone has an opinion on it, but, but actually doesn't know the, the depth and complexity there. So I guess I want to create some space for you to speak to it in, in a way that feels appropriate to you. But I also don't want to put you on the spot, given that it's like we could have hours and hours and hours and hours of conversation about it and, and yeah. still, and still yeah. not emerge any clearer. So yeah, I wonder how that lands with you. Yeah. You know, um, you just said it, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of the deepest, most challenging adaptive challenges mm. that our, our humanity has ever known. Mm. And it is so complicated. It is so complicated, um, and and as is typical with many adaptive challenges, in this case, part of the challenge that we're seeing is that there are many different perspectives, even on what is the problem. There's so many different mm. interpretations mm. Of, of what's going on here, mm. and um, you know, and and I can say, kind of, as somebody who's who's living it in the day to day. I feel like a lot of the work of making sense of of the conflict and also making progress on the conflict actually lives um, within the work that each society needs to do separately. Mm. In other words, I Mm. feel like there is, you know, I'll speak only for Israeli society uh, because that's the one that that I'm most connected to, but there is so much work that we need to do internally as a society in making sense of what this conflict is for us and um and 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 dealing with our our own losses that mm. um that mm. that are so required and are involved in making progress uh on this conflict and it's so easy to kind of look at the other side and say mm. they are doing this mm. or not doing this or this mm. is what happened this is how it happened and like you get into this loop where um i feel like where we need to start where a lot of the work needs to happen is israeli society internally in figuring mm. this out mm. um and and hopefully a palestinian society as well so that we can meet mm. meet and actually do that together mm. You know, that's the first time I've ever heard someone vocalize that perspective. And I'm really touched by it. Like there's this invitation I'm hearing you make to yourself and to everyone who identifies as part of Israeli society to to do the inner work necessary to understand what losses are at stake and what adaptations might be possible so that that they actually you can show up to the table from that place of kind of integrity and alignment and authenticity as opposed to showing up at the table with 12 different perspectives on what needs to happen just on that side of the table. Right. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And thanks for embracing my invitation kind of here at the end to, to dip our toes into those really complex and fraught and emotionally important and challenging waters. And I just really want to honor like I mean, I'll just speak personally to you as a friend and as a person, like when I heard about the bombings and, and like, you know, like my first thought was like, oh my God, like, is my friend okay? Is her family okay? You know, and I just want to honor that, like, 
that's a privilege that that many folks have here in the states and in other parts of the world to not have to ask that question in relation to conflict on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I'm aware there are also lots of parts of the states where people are asking that question every day, but but just to like I want to touch in and honor that like from the day-to-day lived experience to kind of what you're holding in addition to everything else you're holding so skillfully that that you're living through that in a real way and I appreciate you yeah. for that. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. Mm. Thank you. Natalie, this has been such a treat. I'm so glad we got this space. I, I really mm-hmm. sense that it will resonate with lots of other people. And I wonder before we wrap up, is there anything else you feel called to, to share, to speak into the space we've created today? No, you know, I feel, I feel so honored and privileged to be able to do the work uh, the work that I do and to do it also with you. Um, mm. You know, the, the last piece of the story here is that, um, you know, after taking that course at the Kennedy School, I, I really understood how much this framework and this work could be useful. Like I used it as a practitioner mm. and then I understood mm. how useful this could be, you know, to organizations and to change agents and to people uh, that I care so deeply about. And so being able to actually do that um, as a profession for a living um, is such an honor and a privilege and, and, and really my true, my true purpose and calling. So mm. so great to be able to work with you on that. Mm. Thank you, Natalie. Well, you do it beautifully and skillfully and, and I'm grateful to work with you as well. Mm. And thanks everyone for listening in. Where, if people want to learn more about us, I guess maybe about what you're doing, probably konu.org is, is the place to go, right? Are there any other... Any other things you'd point to, or is that the the best spot? I would start there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, Natalie, and thanks everyone for listening in. This This was a real treat. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for tuning in to The Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Sirqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep this show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.